Hello, and welcome to The Search with Clinton Shahe. Today we're discussing Deuteronomy chapters 5 through 11. In this section, Moses begins outlining the stipulations which will govern the relationship between God and his vassal, Israel. This will include a recap and even slight reframing of the ten words, the famous Israelite confession known as the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and more. So, let's dive in. Tonight, we're going to continue our conversation about the book of Deuteronomy. So far, we've looked at the first four chapters of the book, which serve as sort of a preamble in this series of speeches delivered by Moses to the people of Israel. They were camped just east of the Jordan River. They're on the precipice, ready to cross the river and to take the land that God has promised to give them, Uh, but Moses will not be able to go. And so before his death, he's going to deliver a few farewell addresses to the people as a form of a sort of covenant renewal. We talked about that as one of the dominant themes of the book of Deuteronomy. The new generation has come of age. They're ready to go in and do what their fathers refused to do. And so the covenant is being reignited and rededicated, and the people's commitment is being reaffirmed to the Lord, as well as his commitment to them. We talked about how Deuteronomy follows the literary design of ancient suzerain treaties, where a great king or emperor, in this case, God himself, uh, agrees to take a vassal, which is Israel, and he agrees to bless and protect them as long as they swear fealty and obedience to his cause. And so that's kind of the dynamic that's being played out throughout the book of Deuteronomy. In the first four chapters, the prologue, the great deeds of Yahweh were rehearsed as Israel was reminded of how God brought them to the place where they now stood, where their camp was now set, and where the invasion was ready to be launched. So tonight, we're going to talk about chapters 5 through 11. And this section introduces a lengthier section in the heart of Deuteronomy, where various stipulations and terms are outlined as Moses lays out what God expects Israel to do and what he will in turn do for Israel as his covenant partner. So we're going to look at the first section of that, which is chapters 5 through 11. Now, Clint, the first thing we're going to see and the first part of the stipulation guidelines that's laid out by Moses is something that we have seen before. We've talked about how this happens in Deuteronomy. We'll get a little deja vu sometimes thinking, didn't I read this law somewhere else? Uh, But sometimes the law is uh, expanded. Sometimes it's even altered from the previous forms that we saw in Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers. Sometimes additional concepts are added to it. And that will be the case in chapter 5 when the Ten Commandments, or more precisely, the Ten Words, are revisited. So let's read the first couple of verses of Deuteronomy 5 to set the stage for the rehash of the Ten Words, and then we'll dive into some of the differences that exist between this list and the list we got back in the book of Exodus. So this is now Deuteronomy 5, and we'll start in verse 1. Moses convened all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances that I'm addressing to you today. You shall learn them and observe them diligently. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb or Sinai. Not with our ancestors did the Lord make this covenant, but with us 
who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the fire. At that time I was standing between the Lord and you to declare to you the words of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up the mountain. Now, Clint, let's start with this idea here of how the 10 words are being introduced. Uh, this idea that God says, uh, Moses says, the, the covenant at Sinai at Horeb was made with this generation, when in reality, historically, we know that it was actually with the previous generation. So wh- what is going on here with this introduction to the, the Sinai covenant? Well, you know, what's fascinating is what you just said seems to be denied by uh, Moses' words. If you can pull it up again, I want to read the the opening line there in the chapter. In verse 2, he says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, not with our ancestors did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. This is very confusing. And uh, the first time I ever encountered these verses myself other than reading through the Bible. And uh, I have to admit that in my early days of reading through the Bible, I didn't always think of what the words meant. I just sort of engaged them with a hello and a tip of my hat and went on down the road. The first time I thought about the meaning of these verses, I encountered them in a book that was uh, an anti-Sabbatarian book. It was a book written by a fellow to disprove the claims of Uh, groups like the Seventh-day Adventists who would claim that Christians should be keeping the Sabbath. And this was one of the proof texts that the anti-Sabbatarian was bringing up uh, to say that the Sabbath is not a creation ordinance. And he said, you see here, uh, God said through Moses that the covenant that included the Sabbath was not made with the fathers, that would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in this interpretation, but only with the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Well, that may be true, but that's not what this passage is saying. might be the right sermon, but this is the wrong scripture to preach it from. This passage is using a figure of speech that some uh, Bible scholars will call a limited negative, where you have a not A, but B pattern, but the meaning is actually not only A, but also B. I want to give you some examples. I'll just use two from the Gospel of John. If you can pull up John 6, verse 27, we'll look there. John 6, verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. Now, this passage is not prohibiting working to get food for your body. It means do not work only for food which perishes, but also for food which endures to eternal life. Let's look also at John 12, verse 44. John 12, verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me. That's that's an odd statement. (laughs) He who believes in me does not believe in me. But then he goes on, 
but him who sent me. And again, this is a limited negative. He who believes in me does not believe in me only, but also him who sent me. And that's what we've got going on here in Deuteronomy chapter 5. What Moses is saying is that the Lord our God did not make this covenant only with our fathers at Mount Horeb. He made it with us at Mount Horeb. We were in our fathers. We uh, were a part of them uh, in their loins, to use the language of biblical writers. And he did not make it only with them, but also with us, their descendants, those of us who are alive today. The events at Mount Horeb uh, had not lost their significance when those who witnessed them with their own eyes died in the wilderness, but they continued to be relevant and meaningful to these, their children, who stand on the plains of Moab. I believe that's the best way to interpret the passage. That's very helpful, and it fits perfectly with the theme that we discussed in our last video uh, about covenant renewal, that when the covenant was first given at Sinai, it wasn't intended to be lived out by one generation, but that the covenant itself anticipated that these terms and uh, this relationship with God would pass on from generation to generation. In fact, in the next chapter here in Deuteronomy, we're going to see how that was supposed to happen as fathers and mothers raised their children. But the idea that the covenant was not just with that first generation, it was intended to be renewed and passed along from generation to generation as future descendants of that initial Exodus generation uh, came of age and entered into their relationship and their commitment with the Lord. Now, in this uh, list of the 10 words, most of the commandments are, are almost identical, word for word, to what we saw back in Exodus chapter 20. The most significant difference has to do with the fourth commandment, the commandment about the Sabbath, back to what Clint was talking about when we talk about the Sabbath. And it's not that the Sabbath command changes here in Deuteronomy 5, but that the reason for why the Sabbath exists is different. And so I'm going to read it and then ask Clint to talk about why that is. Why is this different from what we saw in Exodus? So here it says in Deuteronomy 5, beginning of verse 12, observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the resident alien in your towns so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember, that's a key theme throughout Deuteronomy, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Back in Exodus, the explanation, maybe you could say the theological framework for the Sabbath isn't looking forward, which is what we have here, but it was looking back to the work of God. And Moses said, for the reason to keep the Sabbath, in six days God made the world, and on the seventh day he rested. So, Clint, maybe any idea here as to why the explanation behind the Sabbath is different here in Deuteronomy from what we saw last time in Exodus? Yes, so I think that uh, in this, this restatement, 
any slight language changes are going to be uh, to bring these commandments into sharper focus for the people to whom uh, Moses is now speaking, to really reinforce that point that he made, that the covenant was made with them also. Now, several things have happened since the event at Mount Sinai. Years have passed, decades. Uh, The generation that came out of Egypt died. So there's a lot of space now between the Exodus event and these people. And the Exodus event is in many respects named as the reason for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a memorial of the Exodus event. We encountered that back in Exodus 31, I believe it was, verse 13. The the Sabbath was to be the sign of the covenant that God made with Israel. And here I think to some degree he explains how that works, that the rest that takes place on the seventh day reminds them that once they were slaves and they had no rest, their lives were uh, burden and hard labor and toil. That's the way that the book of Exodus describes Israel in Egypt. But now they've come out of that situation. They are the people of God. Like God, they're able to labor six days and rest on the seventh day and find a, a cessation of their work and feel accomplished and fulfilled in God. They're able to rest in God as God's people. And really what we see here is the introduction of the idea that deliverance is rest. Deliverance brings an end to a a burden or a calamity or a a problem, and uh, rest is the result. In fact, if we look over at Deuteronomy chapter 12, I want us to look at verses 8 through 10, where the very entrance into the land is going to be called a rest. And I think that that's an important connection here to uh, this rewording of the Sabbath instruction. He says, uh, this is where walking into the middle of a conversation, but he says, you shall not do at all what we're doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes, for you have not yet, as yet, come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security. Now, I won't get into it right now, but in the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews, our readers may be familiar with the fact that uh, the writer of Hebrews references this concept, how the land of Canaan was connected with Sabbath rest and God's creating the world in six days and resting on the seventh. He takes the two uh, verbiages of the fourth commandment from Exodus 20 and from here in Deuteronomy 5, and he blends it all together and ties it in with Jesus and with what Jesus has done. But really, I think the important thing to realize here, the reason that there's a modification in language is because there has been a significant space between that event that... uh, the Sabbath is designed to commemorate, and so they're needing to remember. Why do we do this? Why do we allow not only why do we not only rest ourselves, but allow our servants to rest, our animals to rest? Because it reminds us 
that God has given us rest by delivering us from bondage in Egypt. And this land that we're living in is a rest that God has given to us. Now, before we go on, I want to point something out, and I actually didn't uh, uh, discuss this with you before. Normally, Shahe and I talk about what we might be discussing ahead of time. And I meant to talk about this, but I forgot. And I just want to interject it because I think it's very interesting. We've talked about a Bible scholar named John Walton, and he wrote together with another man named Hill an introduction to the Old Testament, which I read through a few years ago. He has a very interesting observation about the book of Deuteronomy following this uh, statement of the Decalogue in Deuteronomy 5. I guess an article was published back in the 70s by a Bible scholar who suggested that Deuteronomy uh, chapters 6 through 26 actually are an elaboration of the Decalogue, the Ten Words. And I'm just going, I'm going to send this to to Shahe right now. Uh, he might find some way with his technological know-how to share this with, with our viewers. But I'm looking at it here on my Lagos uh, copy of this book. He says that chapters 6 through 11 focus on the content of commandment 1. Chapter 12 on commandment 2. Chapters 13, verse 1 through 14, 21 on commandment 3. Chapters 14, 22 through 16, 17 on commandment 4. Chapters 16, 18 through 18, 22 on commandment 5. Uh, chapters 19 through 21 on commandment 6. 22 through 23, 14 on commandment 7. 23, 15 through 24, 7 on commandment 8. 24, 8 through 16 on commandment 9 and 24, 17 through 26, 15 on commandment 10. And if you read Walton's introduction, he makes the case that you can fit all of the content of those chapters into uh, the heading of each of the 10 words, where uh, the content of those chapters is an elaboration or embellishment on the principle articulated in each of the 10 words. That's a very interesting point I just wanted to throw out there, especially in connection with an observation we made back in Exodus that the 10 words might be viewed as a summary of the law of Moses, the tenor of the law, as I believe uh, God said in Exodus chapter 34. Uh, had you heard of that? Were you familiar with that idea about the book of Deuteronomy? And do you have any thoughts about it? I have heard that before, and it's not something that I have taken time to explore, so I couldn't really give any comment on it right now. But I think that as we go, uh, you know, especially in our next episode, as we finish out that particular section that you've just outlined, we might try to look at that as we go along and see if it's a stretch or maybe if it does line up as neatly as the outline suggests. And we'll try to make uh, whatever that article is available on the description box of the video on our YouTube channel for, for viewers. Well, all right, we've got to move along. Now, uh, we have, we've had this rehashing or this re-delivery of the, of the 10 words in, in Deuteronomy 5, and now we get into chapter 6. And one of the things that Clint mentioned about uh, recalling and remembering and reminding 
as children come of age of why Israelites do the things that they do, why they're in the land that they're in, and so on and so forth. Man, that that theme really pops here in chapter 6. And in chapter 6, we start off right away with uh, this charge from Moses to teach and observe in the land everything that the Lord has said so that your children and your children's children may learn to fear the Lord. At the end of chapter 6, this hypothetical situation exactly as Clint just described, it says that at some point, your child, your children may ask you, why are we? Why do we do this? What's the meaning of this statute? What's the meaning of this ordinance? Uh, what did the Lord God command for us to be doing and why? And he, he comes back again and again to the Exodus. We have to remember we were slaves in the house of Pharaoh. God brought us out with a mighty hand. He displayed all of these awesome signs and wonders, and he delivered us safely to this land, and he's given us all that we have and all that we possess. So I think that is is an excellent explanation of why the fourth commandment is given a different explanation. It's anticipating what's to come and looking even beyond the conquest to when this generation starts to raise their children in the land and to teach them how to remember and how to reflect uh, and how to view the Torah as a whole, as a teaching tool uh, for remembering and for living out the covenant in the land. Now, right in the middle of all this, in Deuteronomy 6, is one of the most famous passages from Deuteronomy. We're going to pause and just spend a minute or two talking about it. It's called the Shema, and it's called the Shema because that's the Hebrew word hear or listen, which is the first word found here in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Or we have here this little note that says, it could also be translated, the Lord our God is one Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This passage, of course, is famous for a number of reasons, not the least of which is because when Jesus was asked which of all the commandments was the greatest, he said, it's this one, and the second is just like it. And then he quotes from Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this statement, Clint, seems to me that it's sort of a, a confession of allegiance uh, sometimes, you know, there's maybe debate about this passage as it reflects to uh, doctrines like the doctrine of the Trinity. How can you have a, a Trinitarian view of God when the Shema so clearly says the Lord is one? Uh, but a, a number of Bible scholars, including Jewish scholars, will point out that the purpose of the Shema is not really to give an ontological lesson about the nature of God, but rather it's a it's a swearing of fealty and allegiance to the Lord. That's why the pronoun our is included. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. The Lord is one. Only the Lord. He is our one and only uh, Elohim. And we follow him and him alone. And I think that that interpretation is backed up by the fact that in this very same chapter, just a few verses later, in verse 14, we have this prohibition, do not follow other gods, any of the gods of those people who are around you. So again, anticipating going into the land, seeing the Canaanites, seeing what they do in worship to their God, the gods they serve, the idols they bow down to, and 
Moses reminding the people, no, for us, there is only Yahweh. Yahweh alone, he is the one, he is our God. Uh, Any comments on that interpretation of the Shema? Well, it was fascinating when you uh, pointed that out when we were talking about this earlier in a private conversation. I had never encountered the Lord alone translation. The only way I'd ever encountered this passage was uh, the the translation I guess I would call traditional uh, for English speakers would be the one that's based on the the King James Version follows that translation and the New King James Version and a lot of other English versions do too. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it's just always been interpreted in, in sermons and, and lessons that I've heard as a statement of monotheism and oftentimes a challenging statement to the Trinity. But I think that you're exactly right. I think that uh, within this context especially, it is a statement of allegiance or loyalty to Yahweh. There's plenty of other statements in the book of Deuteronomy itself that say there is no other God beside you, you know, uh, to affirm monotheism. I'm not denying that the Israelites were monotheists, and uh, I think that they were. I think that Abraham was a monotheist, and not everybody believes that, but I think that he was, and I think that they were monotheists uh, when they were thinking right. Right. Sometimes they were. When they were listening to the prophets. (laughs) When they were listening to the prophets, they were monotheists. The prophets were monotheists. There's no doubt about that. So the best and the most informed people in Israel were monotheists. And the revelation of God obviously was a monotheistic revelation that he was the only God like him. There was no other mighty one who was as mighty as him, who was beside him and equal to him and doing the things that he did. Uh, That is an important message of the Old Testament. But the message here is a message for Israel. Right. You need to hear, that is, obey the Lord our God, Yahweh, Elohim, and him alone. And I thought about a statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that, again, has its own context, but it's a, it's a statement that uh, evidently reflected, you know, the, the verbiage of Gentiles who became Christians. They would say, as verse 5 reads of uh, 1 Corinthians 8, there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and Uh, we exist for him. And I thought, you know, this has the ring of one of those statements that appears throughout the New Testament that was maybe formulaic, a statement that was taught to the church by the apostles to write on their heart and to remember and internalize the principles of the Christian faith. I think probably these people were abusing that statement. As I said, that's a a different matter. That's a 1 Corinthians 8 issue. But the point is, they make this same kind of statement. Yes, there are many gods, many lords that are worshipped by the people of this earth. But for us, there's one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And that's what the Shema is saying. 
There are many gods worshipped by the people we're going to be encountering here in Canaan, but for us, Yahweh alone. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, now let's kind of um, put a few chapters together here, and just we're, we're going to pick out a couple of really interesting things from this section, Deuteronomy 6 through about 8. Uh, Clint has a couple things he wants to talk about, and I have a couple things I want to talk about, so we'll kind of just put it all together. One of the interesting things about Deuteronomy 6 through 8 is that this is the section of the Old Testament that Jesus quotes during his famous 40-day wilderness fasting and temptation by the devil. And this is a section that, again, is rich in that remember language. So much of what happens in these chapters is calling on Israel essentially to remember what God has done and to keep his statutes as a result of what he has done. So there's a reminder about how Israel was chosen by God in chapter 7, and Moses says, it's not because we were mightier, it's not because we were greater, but God chose us because uh, he remembered his promise to Abraham, and so out of all the peoples of the earth, he's decided that we're going to be his special treasure and his possession. Uh, There's the, the prohibition against marrying Canaanites, and the reason that's given for that is because Moses is concerned about the uh, idolatrous influence, the evil influence that the Canaanites will have on the Israelites that could draw them away from Yahweh, from the Lord. Or in chapter 8, when Moses becomes concerned about wealth and how when they get in the land and they start to reap all the harvest that God is preparing for them in the land that flows with milk and honey, that they might start to, you know, sort of pat themselves on the back and think, man, I'm the best farmer anybody's ever known. And it's because of my great uh, planting and watering scheme that I have this great abundance. Moses says, no, no, it's the Lord your God who gives you all these things. It's the Lord your God who blesses you and who uh, enables your seed to produce fruit and enables you to have the abundance of harvest that is coming. And so these kind of constant pulls uh, against the grain of what might draw people away from the Lord that Moses is bringing them back, bringing them back to remember the Shema to remember that the Lord our God, the Lord alone, he is our God, and he has done what uh, everything we needed for him to do for us. Now, in the midst of all this, there are then three statements that Jesus quotes. The first one that Jesus quotes is from chapter 8. That's the famous, not by bread alone. And the other two are right here from Deuteronomy 6. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is recalling the incident when the Israelites were quarreling about water and the Moses has to speak to the rock, strike the rock, or speak to the rock uh, when they put God to the test. And then the second is Deuteronomy 6.13, the Lord your God, uh, you shall fear him, you shall serve, and by his name alone you shall swear. So this was when uh, the, the devil told Jesus, all he had to do was worship him, and he'd be given all the kingdoms of the earth. And uh, he's, Jesus says, no, 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 we, we swear, we worship, we serve only the Lord. And so he rejects that invitation from the devil. So there's so much going on in these couple of chapters. Clint, what do you want to draw out from these few chapters in particular? Well, I have uh, just a couple of things, really. I mean, there's, there's lots of interesting questions and things that I could... 
I, I would like to bring up, but for time's sake, I'm going to bring a couple, then volley it over to you. And uh, if there's anything left, then maybe we can finish up with some uh, a potpourri of, of miscellaneous <laughs> <laughs> there at the, at the end. Uh, one of the most striking points to me comes right after the Shema, when the instruction is being given to take this, these ordinances and this truth and to internalize it. And there's a very vivid depiction of them tying it around their forehead and binding it on their arms. And uh, later generations of Jews literalized that. I'm not sure if the ancient Jews did or not. I'm not sure if, if the original hearers took this as sort of a sacramental thing. But by the time of Jesus, there were people wearing these objects called phylacteries, where they would have a little box with scripture in it tied to their arm or to their head seems to me that that is really missing the point of this passage. And I think Jesus didn't speak very fondly of the phylactery process. It was part of his condemnation of the Pharisees. He said, my, you have a big box of scriptures tied around your head. Sure do wish I could see it in your life. Mm. I wish uh, that it was written in your heart and not just tied to your forehead and tied to your to your hands. Uh, and that's really what Moses is encouraging. He says, uh, let it be so close to you that it's, I think, as if it was tied to your head, uh, but in a way that it, it, it's actually being manifest in your life. But in the same passage, he says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. This is such an important text because it it takes the, the things that you've been saying and it, it, it brings them into the very heart of God's purpose for his people. Uh, we saw at the very beginning of this study that God's purpose was not only for the people who came out of Egypt, but also for their children. And not only for them, but also for their children and for their children's children. And you have uh, brought up several texts that point to that, but this one is is a very key text. Teach them diligently to your children when you get up in the morning, when you walk by the way. I want us to see that there is a motif here uh, that God is, God's plan is an optimistic, forward-looking plan that has generational and generational hope to it. Now, and a lot of modern thoughts about religion, especially about Christianity, there's a grim, dark, doomsday, end of time kind of focus. Mm. I think that's what most people think of when they think of religion, when they think of Christianity. They think of a guy standing out on the sidewalk with a sign that says the end is near. And people who think about religion, even religious people, think about getting ready for the end, making sure that they have everything tied up for when this system comes to an end. It's a very self-centered, inwardly focused, uh, right now kind of a, a way of living. But it looks to me, at least to this point, that the kind of plan God has been revealing to people 
has been a very optimistic, hopeful plan for the future that calls upon people not just to think about themselves, not just to get themselves right with God and get their neighbors right with God, but to prepare for generation after generation after generation of God followers. I I want to encourage our listeners to remember that motif and to examine whether or not that ever goes away, whether or not in the Bible that ever gets replaced with a dark, grim, end-of-days message like the one we hear so much in our own world. So that's that's something that I think is very important and uh, that we really see here in this section. Just to note, three times in this chapter, something is told to you're supposed to teach to your children, three different times. And uh, and in the first instance, it's your children and your grandchildren. So that's really forward-looking, even more so. Very good, yes. It's an excellent point, yeah. And I guess uh, one other point that I want to, to make is that as you, as you move on, like in, uh, in chapter 7, verse 22, where you have the instructions on how they are to settle the land, yes, there are promises of great blessing. And the, the promises of blessing are very meaningful. But the, the blessing promises do not negate the responsibility of cooperation in the covenant and stewardship among the people. God says, I'm going to give it to you in a certain way so that the land doesn't go wild and the, the animals don't get too much for you. And, uh, you know, you're going to have to take care of this. You're going to have to work with me to make this land what it's supposed to be. I think that sometimes when people read blessing promises in the Bible, uh, they think that it means, okay, if I just believe in here, in my head, or if I just do my best to be a, a nice person, morally upright person, then God is going to make everything sort of miraculously be better. Mm. I don't think that's the, the message that we've been hearing from Genesis 1. Yes, God wants us to be nice people, and he wants us to be morally upright and to live holy and pure, but for the for the world to become Eden, for Canaan to become Eden. We're in Canaan right now, so let's just focus there. For Canaan to be transformed and to become Eden, it's going to take the cooperation of God's people. Just like in the Garden of Eden, uh, God was not the gardener. He put Adam and Eve in the garden to tend it and to keep it. Uh, That was their responsibility. I think that's a very important, again, motif to see. Here it is again. Does it ever go away? That's an important question. Uh, Some people just seem to jettison those concepts right after Genesis 1, but we're seeing that they're coming up again over and over. I think that uh, that's about as much as I, I feel like I need to talk about right now. I'd love to hear your thoughts on both of these ideas before uh, you move on to what sure. you want to share. Yeah, let's actually, let's read these couple of verses. This is an interesting passage here in, in Deuteronomy 7. So the context is um, he's, Moses is anticipating that when they cross the Jordan, just like their forefathers did, they're going to see great enemies 
and they might start to be afraid of continuing in the invasion, continuing in the conquest. And so he again reminds them, no, no, remember, God brought us out of Egypt. He He's already manifested his incredible power before you. And then this is what it says. This is Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 20. Moreover, the Lord your God will send... Now, this is the New Revised Standard Version. They, they have the pestilence here, but that's an interpretive translation. Literally, the word, as you can see in the footnote here, is hornets. We'll talk about that in a minute. So, the Lord your God will send hornets against them until even the survivors and the fugitives are destroyed. Have no dread of them, for the Lord your God, who is present with you, is a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to make a quick end of them. Otherwise, the wild animals would become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great panic until they are destroyed." So I think in particular about the point that Clint made was there are two tasks, it seems like, before them. One is to take the land, and the second is to keep the land. And in both of those stages, they will be required to do something as it pertains to the land. So taking the land will require them literally to fight battles. Now, some of those battles will be won without much effort on their part. I mean, at Jericho, they just had to march around the city a few times and blow some trumpets, and God took care of the rest. But other times, they're going to be out in a battlefield in in a, in a big array of soldiers fighting hand-to-hand combat against enemy troops. So that's the first step. The first step is don't be afraid. I'm going to be there. I'm going to, I'm going to help. I'm going to win these battles for you. But that still required them to go. We talked about Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh who wanted to stay on the east side, but they still had to cross over to help their brethren fight and win the war. Then the second stage is keeping the land. And I, I totally agree with your connection to Genesis 2 and the responsibility that God laid at Adam's feet. Remember, Genesis 2 describes Eden not just as an idyllic garden with lots of fruit trees and wild animals, you know, running around in peace and harmony. This is a sacred temple where Adam and Eve in the midst of the garden were in God's presence and they could worship and honor him. And that same design is going to be, is, is God's plan is to implement it in Canaan. And so the centralization of worship is there. That's the the sacred space, the the sacred hotspot where they can go and they can be in the presence of the Lord. But the whole land is to be like the Garden of Eden, and that's going to mean that they have to be stewards of the land to tend and to keep what God is giving them. Sin is one way to defile the land, but so is neglect or greed, Uh, these would be ways where the the land would become defiled. And I think what you are alluding to is that God says, if I just went in and snapped my divine fingers and, you know, all the Canaanites disappeared, what would happen? Before you could get in there and settle, wild beasts and, you know, the the, uh, 
livestock would take over the wild the lives the domesticated animals would just flee the the wild beasts would come in and and ravage the land the fields would overgrow or die out for lack of watering or whatever so that's not the way god's going to do it he's going to drive them out little by little and i i I totally agree with what you've said now there's an interesting statement here i mentioned about the hornets this is the second time we've seen this word only happens only occurs three times in the bible The first is in Exodus, when God initially promises to send hornets to clear the path. The second is here in Deuteronomy. And the third time we see it is actually at the end of the book of Joshua, when Joshua is giving one of his farewell speeches. He says, he recalls this, and he says, God sent hornets and drove the people out. So Joshua affirms that, yes, this actually happened. Now, there are two ways I think you can probably understand the hornets. One is literally that God maybe, I mean, he sent locusts at other times. So, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing far-fetched about him sending uh, a swarm of ravenous hornets to literally attack people and to drive them out of the land. But the other is to understand it the way the New Revised Standard Version translates it here, that um, this is maybe some kind of divine pestilence. Uh, and it could just be a figure of speech, so if you look here at the at the last verse I said uh, I read in verse 23 that he's going to throw them into great panic. So you think here of like when the spies are in Jericho and Rahab says to them this is in Joshua 2 our hearts are filled with dread. We've got no courage. When we heard about what Yahweh did for you on the other side of the river, we just, we lost it. I mean, we thought, well, that's it. There's nothing we can do. So maybe it's a a metaphorical, you know, just the panic, the dread that would be like a swarm of wild hornets being unleashed. And so that's probably two ways you you could look at it. I'm not sure if one is necessarily a whole lot better than the other. Any thoughts on that, on all that, Clint? Well, I do think that the phrase wild hornet is interesting. I've never known one that was... Uh, domesticated hornet. Domesticated. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, in all seriousness, I think that's excellent and, and very good, very, very clear uh, explanation. And I don't really have anything else to, to add after that. Uh, those, those are the major points that that I really wanted to make. Other things we could look at, but they're going to come up again. Okay, well, uh, I want to ask you a question about, um, as it pertains to chapter eight about money, because that's the kind of the the cluster of chapters here that we're looking at. So I mentioned earlier that in chapter eight, we have this real strong warning from Moses who says, uh, when you go in the land and you start to enjoy the bounty God is going to give you, you better not forget where that came from. And I think that there's maybe a certain tension here that you could help us navigate where, on the one hand, God is promising to give them the bounty, and on the other hand, God is concerned about what the bounty will do to them. What do you make of that warning that comes up in chapter 8? Well, yeah, that, you know, that's, of course, another theme that is just pervasive throughout the Scripture is the danger of riches and wealth. And I think that finding it here in Deuteronomy 8 and the, the reasons God gives for his concern is very important because I think most often, especially within that framework of doomsday concern that most people have in their understanding of religion— their thoughts would be the danger of great wealth 
is that wealth, you know, is just momentary. It passes away and it's gone. And so it, it's, it's wasting your life on something that doesn't really matter. That's really not God's concern here in Deuteronomy 8. Uh, the, the blessings that God says Israel is going to get, he's going to give them. I mean, that's the reason he's giving them the land is so that he can bless them and use them to turn the land into an Edenic-like place. And through that whole event, his glory is going to be facilitated amongst the nations. The nations will see and, and marvel. So God is not anti-blessing here. This, this is not an anti-blessing chapter or a chapter that's intended to say blessings are not all they're cracked up to be and, you know, uh, it's not that big of a deal. The point is that the blessings have a purpose and it's, it's easy for human beings to get distracted and to, you know, turn those blessings into something that they weren't intended to be. That is uh, something that actually causes them to forget God instead of becomes an instrument of worship or a, a, a means or a tool by which to worship God and praise God for his goodness. I think it's important to understand that's what was going on here. And I think that's important for us to understand also. There, there are certainly some passages that warn about trusting in wealth when wealth is so momentary and can be stolen and eaten by moths and destroyed by rust and other things like that. But really, uh, blessings are not evil. And the Bible doesn't tell us that we need to, uh, you know, think less of them and avoid them if at all possible. Uh, but rather the Bible warns us that living within the tension, which is what we have to do, is something that has to take uh, care. We have to be careful in our hearts not to allow the blessings to become curses by having a, an effect in us that is contrary to God's ultimate purpose. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that in, if you read Deuteronomy 8, the way to do that is twofold. One, to remember, to look back, to remember, again, slaves in the land of Egypt, everything I have, I have because God brought us here and God gave us this land. And so that's the backward looking. And then the forward looking is, okay, God's given me this bounty, what should I do with it? And in chapter 8 and in a lot of Deuteronomy, the what should I do with it is to help those who are in need, to help the poor mm -hmm. and to care for widows mm -hmm. and orphans and to look out for the foreigners, the, the aliens that are among uh, the people. We read from the Sabbath commandment, even slaves, even foreigners were uh, to be given the Sabbath day of rest and to enjoy that time of rest from labor. So it, the the two-fold system of making sure that money doesn't become problematic for the Christian could be the same, I think, to, to remember that everything we have, we have because God has given it to us, and he's given it to us not to, uh, as the rich fool did, build bigger barns and store up, so that we can have an early retirement, but to use it for the care and help and assistance of those who are struggling, those who are, are in need. Um, okay, so we, we've got the last couple chapters here, and then we'll wrap everything up. So in chapter 9, we have another little trio here at the end. Chapter 9, 
we're uh, told to remember the Golden Calf Rebellion. This particular event is raised. Of course, it was of such consequence at that time that it, it altered so much of the dynamic between even Moses and the Lord. So remember the Golden Calf Rebellion, learn from that uh, terrible sin, and learn about the danger of rebellion. And then in chapter 10, there's a, there is a passage here. It's a little bit long, but I want to read it because we have sort of this distillation of the essence of Torah in this amazing and beautiful excerpt from Deuteronomy 10, and it starts over here uh, in verse 12. So this is Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. So now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Only to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his decrees that I'm commanding you today for your own well-being. Although heaven and the heaven of heavens belong to the Lord your God, the earth with all that's in it, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your ancestors alone and chose you, their descendants after them, out of all the peoples as it is today. Circumcise then the foreskin of your heart and do not be stubborn any longer, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves the strangers, providing them food and clothing. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, him alone you shall worship, to him you shall hold fast, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise, he is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things that your own eyes have seen. Your ancestors went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in heaven. I think that is a wonderful, beautiful distillation. This is sort of the essence of everything the Torah represents. How, the way that it represents the person and character of God, the way that it represents God's election of Israel, and the way that it represents the plan that God had for Israel to go into a land that was more filled with sin and idolatry maybe than any other place in the world, and to transform that land through his covenant partners Israel into something that was like Eden, something that recalled and resembled what the world was like before sin ever entered it. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to take this Canaanite land and change it into Eden, and he's going to use Israel to accomplish all of it. In chapter 11, all of this gets spelled out again, where we have a preview of the blessings that are going to be enumerated at even greater detail at the end of the book, where God essentially makes four promises here in chapter 11. He says, if you'll go in and take the land and do what I have commanded, you'll have strength to occupy the land, you'll have abundant crop harvest, you'll have a multiplicity of children, that's the be fruitful and multiply, and deliverance from your enemies. That's the biblical picture of rest this idea that all will be well in the land and that when all is well in the land, blessings can flow out to the nations. The nations will see what God has done in the new Eden in Israel and they'll want to be a part of it. They'll be drawn by the light of Israel and by the, the amazing wonder of God to this place to learn about this God, Yahweh, and to want to serve him 
and love him and be loyal to him. So we have all of this really condensed uh, in these few chapters, this picture that God has, and we're going to get more and more of that in different sections throughout the book of Deuteronomy. I will wait for you.